Next, the golden days of radio. This is Frank Brzee inviting you to join me for the golden days of radio. Great moments from radio programs of the past, headlining some of the world's most famous personalities. On this program, we are featuring Jack Pearl, Carmen Miranda, Joe Penner, Tommy Riggs, and Betty Lou, plus a salute to our in-person guest, Rudy Valley. If any of you listening now were listening to the radio back in 1928, you probably heard a program like this. And now here's Rudy Valley to sing his signature. My time is your time. Your time is my time. We just seem to synchronize and sympathize. We're harmonizing one step. And two steps, old steps, and new steps, there's no time like our time, and no one like you. From the Hi-Ho Club here in New York City, ABC is taking you dancing to the music of Rudy Valley and his Connecticut Yankees. And now back to Paul Masterson at ABC Radio in Hollywood. Well, that was what it might have sounded like in 1928, and our guest on this edition of the Golden Days of Radio is the man that performed at the Hi-Ho Club. Rudy Valley, welcome to the program. I'm curious to know who selected Manhattan Merry-Go-Round as your theme song. I did. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, Manhattan Merry-Go-Round was the theme song of the show uh, that was on for so many years on NBC. When you were at the Hi-Ho Club, uh, you were on radio, I guess, three and four times a night, weren't you? Three times. You, you, you did a program? Three different stations. WABC, which was then a, little, a small station, uh, American, American Broadcasting, you know, it's called the Atlantic Broadcasting Company, selling greevy radios with offices in Steinway Hall. It later became the flagship station of CBS. Because Paley tells me that in 1928 it was already allied with CBS, but it was not. It was the Atlantic Broadcasting Company, Greeby Radios, in uh, Steinway Hall. Then we did WOR, which later on became the flagship of the Mutual Broadcasting mm-hmm. System, and WMCA, which has always been a single station. 
They were very powerful in the New York, New Jersey, and some spot, parts of Pennsylvania areas. And in those days, you didn't have any problems with clearances? No clearances, no anything. At the end of, uh, let us say, I was there in the high ho Club from 7 in the evening until 3 in the morning. Eight hours, eight solid hours, Saturdays, Sundays, and the holidays, and a tea dance Saturday afternoon for $90 a week. I think Lown came to me about the oh, middle of February, 28, and said, uh, Rudy, we've... Uh, We've got a, we're going to put in a radio broadcast wire, or what they call a remote broadcast thing, from the Hi-Ho Club. He said, I've talked to ABC into doing it. And as you got out of your car, the doorman said, Hi-Ho, as you came out of the taxi cab to go into the club, because it's an old English greeting, and Dickman evidently said to him, even though he's a German boy, he said, he said say, Hi-Ho, and he said, Hi-Ho. So I said, we say, Hi-Ho, everybody. This is Rudy Valley announcing and directing. And we began broadcasting, I'd say, probably about the middle of February. When did you begin the Fleischmann's Hour? The Fleischmann Hour began October 1929, finished October 39, 10 years. And that was, at that time, the most popular show it on the air. It began first in October 29 as a, as a very simple broadcast, again, with only the eight pieces. So the high, uh, the, when we started the Fleischmann Hour, the first program was done in the organ loft of the New York Paramount Theater. At that time, 711 Fifth Avenue was a building of about five stories, in which the first story, I think, was a bank, and the second, third, fourth, fifth floors were all uh, small broadcast studios. One or two are fairly large. They did not have audiences of broadcast in those days. People were never invited in. Eddie Cantor started that. And at the uh, 7-11-5th Avenue, we, we, did, we couldn't broadcast. We were playing the New York Pound, and we didn't have time enough to go over to 7-11-5th Avenue and come back. So we did it in the organ loft of the New York Paramount Theater, which was just a little place with no acoustics particularly. And they decided to have it as though in a nightclub with the sound effects of the spoon in a cup and a noise, a hubbub. They had three or four persons make a little conversation in the background. And we had only one guest artist who appeared three times on the program, usually in the first 15, uh, down around the, the second 15 minutes and the last 15 minutes. Further than that, they asked me to sing a song called The Fleischmann Vitamin E. We sold yeast cakes, the little yeast cake that the housewife used to use for baking and uh, they wrote this song, which was, uh, obviously, of course, you can't have a song about the Fleischmann vitamin E. Even if it was written by Rogers and Hart, it had to be bad. It was an awful thing, but I did it dutifully, and I flatter myself I did it as well as I could do it. With the result that uh, at the end of the program, they came to me and they said, that, that has to go. I said, I thought you'd say that. So they said, how about using Vagabond Lover? I said, that's too egotistical. I don't want to sing a song every night, but I'm just a vagabond lover. I said, no, forget that. And I, the ne- I think the next day I said, I think I've got the song you want because it moves brightly, it has a lovely melody, and it says, I'm here to please you. My time is your time. It's an English thing that I brought back from London, which I heard Jack Hilton play on a Sunday afternoon at the uh, Piccadilly Hotel in London. I was dancing. We were off tea dances from the Savoy on Sundays. We didn't play Sunday. And I, I realized this, was, and they, they immediately heard it. They said, that's it, and became the theme song for the next 10 years. Then about 1932, uh, John Reber, who's the head of J. Walter Thompson, uh, who at that time was considered a very powerful man in radio broadcast circles because he chose Winchell and all the great stars that J. Walter Thompson had, and they had some of the greatest uh, stars and luminaries in the broadcast field, came to me when I was doing the uh, George White Scandals at the Apollo Theater and said, Rudy, we've decided to take the rubber band off the bankroll. Not for me, not for me and my band. 
but we're going to have a variety show because in my first book, my biography of 1929, Vagabond Dreams Come True, I stressed one chapter, variety, that you must have change of pace, change of tempo, change of composition. It's like a room being painted and everything in the room all in one color. You must have changes of key, changes of color, and I stress variety. He said, as a result of your stressing variety, we've decided to do a variety show to open, if possible, with a comedian like Lou Holtz, then to have maybe a headhunter just back from Africa. Then the third will be an excerpt from Yellow Jacket, a new show that's just opened on Broadway with the cast of the original Broadway show doing a 12-minute excerpt from the show. Then there'll be maybe a musical novelty. The boys have just come up from Jamaica with the Trinidad, Trinidad with the uh, Calypso type of music. And we'll put that group on and they'll do a couple of Calypso numbers. Then we'll come back to another comedian and close with maybe Milton Berle. And he will wind up the show. That would be, and they've got peanuts, probably three or four hundred dollars. Some of them, we probably got Yellow Jacket, the entire cast for nothing. In those days there was no after and in order to plug the show, they would tickle to death to come on our show for nothing. Of course, that, that was 1933, though. This, no, this is 1932. 32. The, the, uh, the program began as a variety show, early 32. Up to then, it was uh, one person appearing, Jenna McDonald appearing three times, and one person, that was it. Mm-hmm. I have an excerpt from about 1933, or maybe 34. This is uh, Jack Pearl, who was... Uh, Baron uh, Munchausen. Vajuder, Charlie, yes. Charlie, and you do a, a clip with him. This is an excerpt from the Fleischmann's Yeast Hour, about 1933. You tell some remarkable stories, Baron. That last one was so fishy, it gave me a haddock. Yeah, now, and I wasn't... <laughs> you see, the Baron makes the jokes. Now, you see, you see, uh, uh, you see, I beg your story, what did you say? I said your last story gave me a haddock. <laughs> That's very finny, Mr. Barry. <laughs> now, when I was in South America, I... I know. W- you dive down to the bottom of the harbor in Rio, and there were Lou Holtz and I playing casino while Bill Spargrove kibitzed. Honestly, Rudy, I don't know how you can stand there and lie like that, you know? Forgive me, Baron. So you were in South America. How was the swimming down there? Oh, now, that's better, Rudy. Swimming down there was pretty rough until I got past Miami. You uh, swam to Miami? <laughs> sure. You see... It's unbelievable. I made, I made a very good time, too. You know, <laughs> shark was pushing me. You see, I... I still don't believe it. What do you say? I still don't believe it. Then the shark swallowed me. You see, so... The shark swallowed you? Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. Where do you think I found you from? And now, wait, you see it in the newspapers tomorrow. Then I got... Uh, then I got my now, second now, just a second, and... just a second. Do you want me to believe that you swam all the way from New York to South America? Well, I would prefer it. Well, I, I'm not going to believe a thing like that. Rudy, if you ain't going to believe a thing like that, <laughs> you're going to have a lot of trouble with the stuff that comes later. <laughs> you see? So I, uh, I, I swam and I swam... Uh, I saw one wave over a thousand feet high. A thousand feet yeah. high. And, and yes, sure, it went up in the air a thousand feet, and it stayed there. It stayed there. Yeah. <laughs> was a permanent wave. You see, so, so one day, listen to this. You've got to listen to this. This will kill you. <laughs> I hope. Listen, so one day, so one day I was swimming, and I, and I looked up, and there was a school of dolphins swimming along eight feet above the water. So Who I, ever heard of a school of fish swimming above the water? Yeah, this was a high school. You see, I, you 
And so I watch You think I believe that? <laughs> you think I care? So I swim and I swim. I swim for 42 days and 42 and 42 days and 49 nights. And finally... Now wait a minute, wait a minute. 42 days and 49 nights? Yeah. What about the other seven days? <laughs> I took Sundays off. You see? So when... I see. What did you do on Sunday? I went swimming. What I did on Sunday... Now, please, leave me alone, will you? So, finally, I got to South America. And I went ashore into a terrible South American jungle. And, Rudy, I didn't have any gun or knife or anything. Well, and there was a great big mountain lion. I pulled out my gun, and with one shot, I killed him dead. Now, Baron, then, you just said you didn't have a gun. So I killed him with a knife. You also <laughs> said you didn't have a knife. Did I say I didn't have a pin? No. <laughs> so I killed him with a pin. <laughs> I brought that mountain lion back here with me, and I'm going to stuff him. No. Yes, I'm, I... You see, I'm going to stuff him. I'd like to see that lion. I'm willing to have it stuffed for you. Yeah? yeah. No, I'll do it myself. Why don't you let me do it? <laughs> the Baron does his own lion. <laughs> Rudy, I think you'll agree that comedy holds up as well today as it did when it was first broadcast. Can you imagine seeing that kind of a routine on a the, television show? Uh, delivery, but the writing itself. Like he, I don't understand why he didn't have a longer life, because to me, he was just just delightful. And uh, frankly, I, I, I think Pearl should have uh, not been pulled off when he was pulled off. Well, of course, he wasn't the type of comedian uh, who could host a show, though, I don't think. He, he did his set routines... Uh, I, I don't know. How how would you say that Joe Penner could host a show any better than uh, Jack Pearl? And after three shows, three appearances on my Fleischman Hour, uh, Joe Penner was so sensational that Standard Brand said, we want you to host the Baker's show, the Baker's, which is also selling yeast for baking. And he went on to his own show on the Baker's. He didn't last too long. He only lasted about, I think, two years at the most. In fact, I watched first Penner work with uh, Paul Whiteman in 1927. I came to New York in December of 27 to seek my fortune. I went to the New York Paramount, sat back way in the back row and watched him work with Paul Whiteman. Paul played straight to him who, uh, when, when Joe Penner says, how do you raise corned beef and cabbage? And, uh, and you're, you're supposed to say, you're supposed to say, I don't know, how, how do you raise corned beef and cabbage? And he's supposed to say, with a knife and fork. I mean, Penn is supposed to give the gag. And later on, he worked with me at the Brooklyn Paramount before he went to my Fleischmann Hour. And uh, over there, I did the same thing the Whiteman did. And we always had a gag. The last night of the last week of the show, we opened on a Thursday, a Friday, and closed on a Thursday night. The fourth or fifth show, which was the last night on Thursday night, we always liked to do crazy things like that. And if you did it with Penner, you completely threw him. He'd worked with me at the Brooklyn Paramount. Suddenly, I, in 1932, I was told he was going to be on the show. I didn't choose him. J. Waller Thompson chose a great many of the persons for whom I get credit. And it embarrassed me sometimes because I didn't pick Penner, I didn't pick uh, Bergen. But I did at least saw, the, saw, to it, I saw to it that they went on where they should have gone, relaxed and easy. Well, would you believe I have an excerpt with you and Joe Penner uh, where he does that really? one gag? That, I really as do. I said to Jack Pearl, is incredible. <laughs> Hello, Rudy. Hello, Joe. How are you? You want to buy a duck? No, Joe, I don't want to buy a duck. Why? Why? Because. Well, uh, maybe your brother would like to have one, huh? I haven't a brother. Uh, well, if you had one, you think he'd consider it? No. Under no circumstances? Under no circumstances. You nasty boy! 
What's the easiest way to raise corned beef and cabbage? With a knife and fork. <laughs> Don't never do that. That's a famous bit, you nasty man. And Wanna Buy a Duck, I guess, was was uh, the most famous thing uh, that, uh, that Joe Penner was that known for. That song, Oh, You Nasty Man, was responsible for Alice Faye becoming a star. And you knew Alice Faye very well, didn't you? Well, very well, indeed. I almost <laughs> married her. In fact, we were very, very close. And she was my girl band singer for about a year and a half. I started him as, as an agent. Well, you started someone else, too. The first time Carmen Miranda was ever on the air was on your show. Now, did you pick Carmen Miranda no, to be on the first one? She came up from Brazil, and her records had already made her quite popular in the United States. The Victor records she had made, made a flock of them, with her own little group of four or five boys. And she was now with uh, Olsen, what's the, what's the name of the boys that had uh, the crazy team, the two comedians. Olsen and Johnson. Olsen and Johnson. Mm-hmm. Had a show. It wasn't the original uh, crazy show, Hell's a Poppin'. They had another show over on, um, more up on the west side than uh, off-Broadway, and they used her in the show. I think someone at J. Walter Thompson probably thought about using her. Again, I did not choose her. Well, you introduced her, though, for the first time. Of course, I, as the host of the show, it was my uh, obligation, my pleasure, to present any personality that we mutually agreed to appear on the show. And this is what it sounded like. All Broadway started raving one night last week when Carmen Miranda introduced Bamboo Bamboo and the hit tune South American Way. She was really something. Tell me, do you remember Tommy Riggs and Betty Lou? Yes, I always felt that he contributed uh, not very much to our show. Very lightweight thing. He used to get very annoyed when I would do it, too. And uh, my boys can't do it too well today, but... At that time, I could talk about Tommy Riggs talk like that. And he used to become a little annoyed because it's so easy for me to do it. And at that time, my throat was in much better condition. And he didn't like it at all that I could do this little voice. And he was far from being the uh, master of great comedy that Bergen was. Well, of course... he had one voice anyway. He was not a ventriloquist, which you mention in this excerpt. This is the first time he ever appeared on the air, and you introduced him on August 5th, 1937. Tommy Riggs and Betty Lou Barry, for whom we have high hopes and about whom you will require some explanation. Tommy and Betty came to us from a station in Cincinnati. Tommy is an extremely likable young man of unique accomplishments, the most remarkable of which is Betty Lou. 
For little Betty exists only in the voice and the imagination of large Tommy. Mr. Riggs is not a ventriloquist. He simply uses two voices, and one of them is Betty. Now that you're here, young lady, what are you going to do for all your friends, huh? Well, I know a poetry that I know, too. All righty, well, let's hear this poetry. There was a young lady from Savannah who one day slipped on a banana. And since that sad day, I'm sorry to say, she stands up when she plays the piano. <laughs> but I'll bet you don't know what I have to do, do you, Mr. Tommy? I have to go to school pretty soon, too. Well, that's nothing to feel bad about. But you know, going to school will be lots of fun. You learn how to draw pictures, young lady. Oh, but I already know how to draw pictures, Mr. Tommy. Look, I have one in my pocket. Well, that's, that's fine, young lady, but just uh, what's it supposed to be? Well, Mr. Tommy, that's a cow eating grass. Cow eating grass? Well, I don't see any cow. All I see is grass. Yes, I know, but you see the cow eat all the grass he wanted, and, and then he walked away someplace. <laughs> Say, Tommy, I'd like to meet Betty. Well, I know that she's just dying to meet you, Rudy. Say, Betty, won't you say hello to Mr. Rudy Valley? Oh, hello, Mr. Valley. Hello, Betty. My, but you look pretty. <laughs> well, I think that you're awful pretty, too, Mr. Valley. <laughs> but did you eat a uh, crust of bread when you were a little boy? Eat crusts of bread? Yes, because you have such beautiful wavy hair. I think you're awful pretty. Well, thank you very much, Betty. Didn't I see you crying a few minutes ago? Oh, uh, you mean when I was crying, huh? Yes. What were you crying about? Well, because my mommy promised to take me downtown and buy me some toys, and then she didn't do it. She bought me a darned old chair. A, a darned old chair? Well, I think that's a lovely present for a little girl like you. Well, the chair was all right, only it was broken. Broken? What was the matter with it? Well, it had a great big round hole in the middle of the seat. Rudy, we've got so many other things, and, and uh, part of one of your nightclub routines... But uh, we're out of time today. Will you join me next week on the Golden Days of Radio? Uh, if you'll change your theme song, yes. <laughs> if you'll sing the theme song, will you... Uh, not that Manhattan marriage God <laughs> well, forbid. Well, we'll find something else for next week's show. That wraps up this edition of the Golden Days of Radio and our salute to our in-person guest, Rudy Valley. This is Frank Brzee in Hollywood, California, inviting you to join me next week when we will continue with more highlights in the career of Rudy Valley. This is the American Forces Radio and Television Service. <laughs>